Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message is Account Overdrawn. Account Overdrawn. Some of you are like, I already feel convicted. Uh, I don't even know what this is about. But, um, uh, you know, Gretchen and I have three kids, and, and this thing happens all the time. And if some of you that are parents, uh, you've had this, this thing before where my kids are perpetually bored. Uh, anybody else's kids in this category? Um, and somehow they're under the impression that it's my job just to en- entertain them around the clock. And um, usually this involves entertaining them with money. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like, I don't make a ton of money and uh, it's a crazy economy. And so we try and live by a budget and be responsible. Kids have no concept of this. And so there's so many times where, um, you know, we're driving back from taking them to school or church or something and like, what are we going to do today? Can we do that? Oh, I know we could go out to eat. And uh, I'm like, we're not going to go out to eat. We don't have budget for that, you know? Um, and then they get real sad and bummed, like I just ruined their life. Um, or we'll be out somewhere and they're like, let's go go-karting. You know, dad, can you buy me these Jordans? And I'm just like, no, this is not, these things are not in our budget right now. We don't have money for that. And kids are like, they have a comeback to this that seems like the magical trump card that is going to win every money argument. And I wonder if your kids say this thing too. They're like, dad. Just use your card. <laughs> Easy. You don't have money? Uh, just use your card. Because in their mind, uh, they, and you cannot explain this to a child. Like, they don't get how it works. To them, a debit card, a credit card is a magic wand that just gets you whatever you want. And that's the end of the story. Nothing else happens. It's like, where does the money come from? How does it work? They're like, I don't know, and I don't care. You know, it just works. Can you just get me what I want with your magical card that I don't get, right? And part of the reason for this is that children have a certain mindset, right? Kids think that, you know, things should just work without me having to work at them, right? And so, although you were thinking about, like, the money and the consequences and all the other things you need to do in your budget, like, kids aren't thinking about any of that sort of stuff. They're just like, the card just works, and that's all I need to know about it. I don't need to know anything else. And we all begin at this place when we're kids as well. But as you grow up, you start to learn how the real world works. And it's not true. That um, the, the odd thing, and maybe some of you have never realized this before yourselves, but a debit card only works if you've deposited money into the account. Some of you just got your minds blown. And so that was what God needed you to know today, right? That's it. Like, and, and that means that you have to work, right? You have to work to make money to put it into the account. And yet, at the same time, you don't get to keep every dollar that you work for, which is another thing that is hard for kids to wrap their head around because some has to come out for taxes and some has to come out for insurance and some has to come out for retirement. And then on top of that, you can't even just spend what is remaining on just the things that you want because you also have to pay for the things that you need, right? Rent and utilities and toilet paper. And it just feels like, why would we waste money on that until you really need some and you're out and then you're like, this is why we spend money on this, okay? And kids don't think about any of these things. 
Like, and because they're just like, just put it on the card, right? And you could, you technically could use credit. But also, you know, as a grown up, that if you use credit, then you're going to end up paying more for that item than it's actually worth and more than it costs right now because they're going to add interest over time. And this mountain of debt is going to pile up. And like, then you're going to have to work even harder to pay for that stuff on the back end. But as a kid, you don't care about any of this. In fact, even if this were explained to you in the mind of a child, and I know this because my children have done this to me many times, they're just like, that's a lot of words. I don't know what you're saying, but I don't care about any of that. Can we just do it anyway? And as I'm talking, some of you just sort of realized, oh my gosh, I think like a child. Um, (laughs) That is exactly kind of how I frame things, kind of how I approach situations. Um, But in your defense, our culture creates a lot of tools that enable us to avoid adulting, like thinking in this way. Like our culture gives us so many different options to give into our every impulse to live lives of comfort and convenience and to constantly be catered to. Like you can have anything you decide that you want right now delivered to your doorstep, maybe even before you get home from this service. That is insane. And I love that. I utilize this. It's incredible. But there's a downside to it. Because what can happen as a result of this is we can come to expect relationships to work like DoorDash and Amazon Prime. And we can start approaching other people and connections as, listen, here's how it should work. If I want it, I order it. And then if after I open it, I'm disappointed with it. I'm entitled to exchange it for something else or return it for a full refund. And some of you that are currently like, like on the dating scene, you're like, that is exactly how it works. Like we, we treat people like they're products and we treat the relationship like it's some sort of an online service. But romance, real romance doesn't really work that way. And we all learn this sooner or later, sometimes for some of us a lot later. The reality that approaching adult relationships with a childish mindset always ends in disappointment. And some of us have learned this the the hard way. Some of us are still struggling with the ramifications and the fallout and the ripple effect of diving into an adult relationship with a childish mindset and still recovering from the wounds of what happened. And this happens to all of us. We, we all begin at a certain place and have to grow to a more mature place. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who's one of the first Christians who's credited with having written the majority of the New Testament, he talks about his own learning curve uh, this way. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, and he says this. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But then I grew up and I put away childish things. Now, this verse could be applied to a lot of different things, but um, if you look at the context of this passage, this, this verse, the, these couple sentences is wedged in the middle of uh, a whole interlude about the way we view love and the way relationships work. In fact, just a few verses earlier is the section uh, that's like this detailed description of what love is that often gets read at weddings, right? See, this sounds familiar to you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, just a few verses earlier. Love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice over injustice, but whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. You know what like, struck me about this as I was reading over this one more time in preparation for this message? When you stare at this passage, I wonder if you noticed, they're all action words. Isn't that interesting? And essentially what he's saying is, love works when you work at it, which we really don't want to believe. It feels like, mm, I prefer to uh, view it in a, a slightly different way. Like in, in our culture, we tend to believe and think of love as this set of feelings that we fall into as opposed to actions we commit to. And that's why we say things like, and you've had these conversations with people, right? Where they're just like, I have, I have never felt like this before. Oh, my God, I think I'm falling in love, you guys. You don't understand. You don't understand how they make me feel. And here's the thing that you should know. We do. We do understand how they make you feel. It's that slightly sweaty, anxiously excited anticipation of where this could go and what could happen and how great we could be together. And your heart beats fast and your breath gets shallow and your skin gets sensitive and your eyes widen and your inhibitions fade and your imagination runs wild. And there's a reason all this happens. Dopamine. You know why you feel like you're floating? You're high! <laughs> That's the reality of what is going on. A brain, a chemical is released in your brain that feels so incredibly good. In fact, it's the same chemical that, rele that releases. It's the same chemical high that you get when you shoot heroin. That's insane. Of course we love falling in love. In the same way that someone loves the first hit of heroin, it feels so good. You lose your mind a bit. You can't imagine anything being as incredible. And, and this is why early on, our attraction with that person is so incredibly magnetic, right? We're excited by all the newness and all the possibility but what happens is as the relation evolve, as the relationship evolves, the thrilling mystery of someday becomes the boring predictability of every day. Because the, the mystery has gone over time. You're like, I wonder what it's gonna be like. And that turns into this is what it is. <laughs> and a lot of times when we get into the rhythm of that thing. Uh, like we don't really know how to deal with that because that's not how we thought it was going to be. You notice how like all rom-coms end on the dopamine high? They fall in love. The person finally loves them. And everyone's like, <laughs> and then the credits roll. He's like, whoa, 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 what happened a month later? What happened when she had that baby? Where did, where did the story go from here? And they're like, hey, you don't want to see that part. I think what happens to a lot of us is when the, the dopamine dumps dissipate, you find yourself saying things like, well, the honeymoon's over. The thrill is gone. Or maybe like you're more proactive, you're like, we need to spice things up. 
And I'll just be real, you probably do, okay? <laughs> and this is actually possible. It's actually possible to inject more dopamine into your relationship, right? Um, what you do is you're going to go down the, um, the, this guy, he, listen, heroin is very, no, I'm just, <laughs> I mean, I mean the natural way in your relationship, guys. But there are ways that we can actually weave more mystery and explore new experiences together and actually create that newness, excitement, anticipation. But like that's just chasing that is not enough because love is so much bigger than that. Because here's the reality. We don't just want to be turned on. We want to be taken care of. And for a lot of us, once the dopamine drip slows, we're tempted to detach and actually destroy the thing that we are most after, the thing that that first stage is designed to get us into, that next stage of connection. And this is not a new phenomenon, which is why there are so many passages in the New Testament where authors that are trying to pastor real people, trying to do their best and, and have a lasting, loving relationship, why they say things like this. And this happens to be our theme verse here at South Hills for the year. It's Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. The author says this, don't be selfish. Don't try and impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, there's several things I think are interesting about this as we like unpack this passage together. But like, I wonder if you noticed that like none of these feel like suggestions, like the way they're framed. They're, they're commands, it's like, do this, do that, make this happen. You need to, right? Why, why frame this as a command? For a very, very logical reason. Nobody wants to do it. You don't have to command people to do things that they already want to naturally do. I've never been commanded to eat ice cream. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to eat it when you tell me not to. No one's like, you will eat this ice cream. They're like, there's no clean spoons. <laughs> I don't care. You stick a fork in there and you get after it. <laughs> okay. Never, never happened. But other things have to be commanded because they're good things that we just don't want to do. It's, it's like, we're like, it sounds hard. I don't feel like it. And the author commands this for the same reason that parents command middle schoolers to take a shower. It's like, this is good for you, but you don't want to do it. And I'm going to suggest it, but you're going to ignore it. And so I'm going to command it and make you. And then you're going to do it. And, and you're going to be glad that you did it. And more importantly, the world is now a better place because of it. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm welcome. We're all welcome because you obeyed this command. And this really is the, the heart of this whole passage, that this is what love does. This is what love is. Love intentionally prioritizes them instead of impulsively preferring me. And this is Jesus' entire philosophy of love, which is like a, a really nice idea, but how do you do it? Because here's what I and probably many of you have discovered 
Falling in love is way easier than learning to live with the one you fell for. That's the tough part. That's the make it last part. That's when it gets real. And that's the, the part that we, we struggle with. That's the part why there, there need to be so many commands associated with because we don't really feel like doing most of what makes it work. And we find this idea annoying because this is the way we are, right? We just want it to work without having to work at it. You ever felt, felt yourself thinking that inside of your relationship? People are like, well, you need to work at it, and it's really work, and love is, you know, it's, it takes time, and you really got to assert yourself, and you're, and you're thinking like, yeah, 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 but in your mind, you're like, I want it to just work without having to work at it, and you know what that is? Childish. It's childish, and yet none of us is above it. On the other hand, like, if you did have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, like, what would that look like? Like, what would that empower you to do? How would you live that out? And I want to give you a few things that I think um, this means, that this passage is, uh, like, directing us towards. Four things. The first thing is this. Um, If you had the same attitude as Jesus Christ in your marriage, you will see more than yourself. And what I mean by that is, you know, when, when most of us look at like a picture um, that we're in, the first thing we do is look at ourselves and ignore everyone else. Some of you are like, I don't do that. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. And in fact, here's the crazy part. We tend, all this is, we tend to evaluate. There could be 15 other people in the photo, and it's really, the, the subject of the photo is someone else's wedding. And we tend to evaluate the value of the photo based on how we feel about how we look in the photo. I hate that photo. You know, it's really about Sherry and her wedding. Sherry could have at least had the decency to crop me out. (sighs) They hung it on their wall, though. It's up there forever. And the reason we do this with photos is because we do this with everything. We tend to evaluate whether or not something is great based on if it's like good for me and if I like it and if I feel good or look good in the middle of that situation because we're really hyper-focused on ourselves much of the time. And I think a lot of times we have these moments where we realize that we have responded poorly in a situation and we, we say something to the effect of like, oh, I'm, I, you're right, I'm so sorry. I was, just, I was just in my head a little too much just then. And what we mean is I was thinking so much about what I was feeling and what I was wanting that I was sort of ignoring what everyone else was thinking and wanting in that moment. And that's really not compatible with love as it's described in Scripture because love makes decisions on what is good for us, not just what is good for me. And in order to do that, you actually have to look beyond yourself, your own feelings, your own wants, needs, and desires, your own favorites. And you have to actually look at, listen to, get to understand, seek the opinions of the people around you, specifically the person that you're partnered to. The second thing I think that this leads us to do is to do more 
than you want. Do more than you want. There's this myth in our culture that's just like, you know what? Just do you. Just do what you love. And you know what? You'll always love your life. That's a lie, okay? I just want to let you know that is a lie. Because what is right doesn't always feel right when it comes time to do it. Which is why we've all made plans, and then we got up to it, and we're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Because, like, intellectually, we're like, that would be a great thing to do, a wise thing to do, a smart thing to do, a loving thing to do. And then we got up to it, we're like, this is not a fun thing to do. I do not want to do it. I do not feel like doing it. I don't want to. I got to tell you, like, um, I, I love my job. I don't like coming to work every day. It doesn't matter how much you love what you do. You don't always feel like doing it. And I would also tell you, like, no one who builds a great marriage feels head over heels every single day. But we stay the course because it's worth it. In fact, there's this moment in uh, Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is talking about relationships that are requiring more of you in a moment than you feel like giving. And uh, this is the, the advice that he gives, relational advice. He's like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them the shirt off your back. And everyone's like, mm, it's really more than I want to do. Each of these scenarios, right, it requires us to do more than we want because most of us are like, I don't even want to go the first mile for you. I don't feel like it. Right? I don't even want to buy you another shirt, let alone give you my shirt. I don't want to have to do any of these loving things. And yet, this is what loving like Jesus looks like. The third thing is it causes us to give more than you're comfortable. Like when you work out with a trainer, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but when you work out with a trainer, like they're like, okay, we're just going to do three more. And then you do three more and they're like, cool, one more. And then you're like, but that's four. I don't know if you know how to count good, but... And then you're like, okay. And then you're like really straining. And they're like, oh, oh so good. And you're like, oh. And they're like, one more. And you're like, what? That's five. That's five. And then you do that. And they're like, okay, one more real good one. You're like, we're now at six. That is two times three, which was the original agreement. I got nothing left to give. And here's what's weird. You end up doing it. Isn't that weird? Because here's the reality. And this is what they're trying to teach you. This is what trainers do. This is their trick, Okay. They find out where your limits are, and then they slowly, incrementally push you past them. But it's because they're trying to get you to realize that you have more to give than you actually want to give. And it's pushing past your comfort zone that actually causes you to grow. That that's where the real growth comes from. And let me just tell you, relationships require you to give way more than you're comfortable with. A lot of the time, when we first had uh, Tegan, she cried a lot. I guess a lot of babies do this. I don't know if you guys have heard that. And, you know, she didn't want to sleep in the middle of the night. And sometimes she would cry, and we would do all the things we needed to do, and she didn't stop crying. And, and then, like, there was this one move that I could do that we called the salt shaker, where I would hold her like this and just bounce her like this. And that would, that would quiet her down. And so she would want me to do that at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I'll just tell you, I did not feel like giving that of myself at that moment. It was not comfortable. 
There was nothing about like trying to love my wife and my daughter in that moment that was comfortable. I didn't feel like doing it. It was uncomfortable and frustrating. But this is the way in which life works, in which love works. Sometimes the main thing that's required of you during a certain season of a relationship is something that is enormously uncomfortable. And yet I would also tell you that when you push past that, that personal discomfort and you do the thing that needs to be done, you give of yourself in the way that they need to receive, even though you're not comfortable, even though you don't want to, and you do it with a good attitude, nothing is more loving. And yet some of us are like, well, not really comfortable with that. And the fourth thing I think it pushes us to do is this, to love more than you feel. This may come as a shock to you guys, but Jesus did not feel like going to the cross. Just a quick FYI, if you're not familiar with the story. In fact, he actually goes to this garden and prays, and it's just like, I don't want to do this. I don't feel like it. It's not comfortable. It's more than I want to give. I don't want to. And yet, he does it anyway, and that's the point. Like, Jesus loved us to death, literally, his own. He sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed even when it hurt. And we're told over and over again in the New Testament that love looks like Jesus, that real love looks like Jesus, looks like having the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. In other words, the basis for loving well is Jesus' actions, not my feelings. And a lot of times this is where we just stop short because we're like, eh, I've loved you as much as I feel like loving you. And yet the command in scripture is not to love as much as you feel, but to love in a way that represents Jesus. And I would tell you the best love stories are full of examples of people acting against their feelings. And if you're going to have a truly great love story, yours is going to have these examples too. Things you decided against that you kind of wanted to do. Things that you laid down, opportunities that you set aside, potential that you chose not to fulfill, dreams that you demoted for their sake. These are proofs of love. One of the most loving things we can do is set ourselves aside and prefer them, prioritize them. Now, with that said, there are times that we need to draw lines and establish boundaries. Because I know some of you are just like, cool, just let people walk all over me. That's what God wants us to do. And that's not what I'm saying. Loving well isn't about martyrdom or enabling dysfunction. But at the same time, you are going to have to make, have some difficult conversations and make some difficult choices about how to move forward. And a lot of times, you don't completely have the clarity to do that in and of yourself, which is, again, why we tell you to get in a group with other people. You need mentors who love God and love you and have an outside perspective that are just like, mm, that's you being selfish. That's you being in an abusive situation. This is just you kind of being a baby. This is you being childish. This is you not taking care of yourself, and that's a problem. 
And we need these voices in our lives to help us discern what to do and where to draw what lines. But in order to do that, you got to share your story with someone else, which sometimes we avoid. You see, love isn't about losing yourself, but becoming your best self by deciding not to make everything about yourself. And this is what Jesus is trying to get at. He doesn't want you to disappear. He doesn't want to get you to get rid of the things that are you. He wants you to be you. He wants you to be the best version of you who isn't exclusively focused on just you. And yet the sad thing is the longer a relationship goes, the easier it is to make it more about you, what you want, what you deserve, what they're not doing that they should be doing. And what happens is this thing that started off with you being enamored with them and willing to do anything for them devolves into this thing that revolves around your obsession with what they're not doing for you. And some of us end up turning into somebody we never wanted to be, a person who's always insisting on what we want and hounding them about what they need to do to be better, demanding more from them than we're willing to invest in them. But the reality of it is, when more is withdrawn than deposited, you end up relationally bankrupt. And what I think is ironic is this principle that we laugh at kids for not understanding about money, some of us, even though we're in our 40s and 50s, haven't learned it about relationships. If you swipe your card and you haven't put anything in that account, you're gonna walk away disappointed. And this is true of your bank and this is true of your relationship. Relational expert Dr. John Gottman says that we all have what he calls an emotional bank account. Um, with every relationship that we're involved in. And how he explains it working is that like we make deposits by showing appreciation, understanding, affection, and kindness. And we make withdrawals by acting entitled, condescending, uninterested, and uncaring. And what is interesting about this is through like decades of research, what they've discovered is that the number one factor in a couple's happiness is whether they make enough deposits to cover the withdrawals. Think about that for a minute. You know what they found that the magic ratio is? Five to one. Five deposits for every one withdrawal. Some of you are like, and there's the problem right there. Like some of us are in relationships that work the opposite. It's like five withdrawals to every deposit. And you know what ends up happening? The account gets overdrawn. The relationship goes bankrupt. We're turning away from someone and asking for things from someone, but we haven't put anything into them. And so there's nothing left for them to give. I mean, you guys have figured this out with your own bank accounts. Like if you overdraw on the account too many times, what happens? They close it. And the same thing happens in our relationships. I would also say if like only one person is making all the deposits and the other one's always making all the withdrawals, that doesn't work well either. Like if you always go where they want to go, and do what they want to do and pick up the slack while they always sit back and you listen to their stories and feelings, but they never listen to yours. That imbalance is going to bankrupt you and it's going to make you bitter. 
And a lot of us, we fall to one extreme or the other. Some of us compulsively over deposit and others of us callously over withdraw, but both throw the relationship off balance. And I say compulsively over deposit because we don't actually want to do these things. We're not doing it out of love. We're doing it out of obligation or out of manipulation. And I, I say callously over withdraw because there's part of us that doesn't notice or doesn't care that they're investing and depositing so much more than us. Some of us, we live in this space. We are operating inside of a relationship where we keep swiping the card, swiping the card, swiping the card, demanding, asking, insisting, and the account's overdrawn. So what do we do about it? I want to give you guys not just some categories, but some practical things that you can do to make deposits in your partner's emotional bank account. These are research-based things I think will really help you. And the first thing is this, pay more attention. Pay more attention, right? This means like um, put your phone away and look them in the eye and actually be an observant of them. You ever notice like when you're first like sort of falling in love with someone, you notice everything about them? You're obsessed. You're paying a lot of attention. You're very focused. Over time, we sort of stop paying attention to things. Make it a game for you to notice every little tiny detail about them. Like give yourself points for noticing. Don't share these points out loud with them. This is just something you do in your own head. Like make it your goal to, to like notice what they're doing, what they're working on, how they're feeling. Paying attention does a lot for relationship. I, I think a lot of times in relationships, um, the withdrawals feel like just being ignored, just not being seen. And, and paying attention is just a, a little way we can just make some deposits. The second thing is this, give them space to share. And like a real practical way to do this, this is actually what Gretchen and I do. Um, give that other person 15 to 30 minutes when you both first get home from work or school or whatever uh, to listen to what's going on in their life outside of your relationship. And this is what happens a lot of times when, we, uh, when a relationship begins to evolve is that we just sort of leave everything outside of our relationship, outside of our relationship. We don't talk about work. We don't talk about our friends. We don't talk about things that are going on or stressing us out outside of the thing until we are so overflowing with stuff that we just vomit all over them and then they're like, ah, and they can't handle it. And it's too much. And yet we need space to simply talk and share about what's going on. A lot of times um, what, what will collapse a couple is stress outside the relationship spilling into the relationship, right? You've probably had these seasons where you can feel that there's tension, that something's weird between the two of you, like something's going on with them, but they're not talking about it and telling you what it is. And so instead, they take the thing that's not about you out on you. And so instead of actually being able to like help them and care for them, to allow them to vent, to validate where they're coming from, you're on the receiving end of frustration and aggression that actually has nothing to do with you. And we can avoid this 
by taking time on a daily basis just to sit and talk. The third thing is this to show gratitude daily. Like pick one specific thing each day to affirm them about. And here's what happens. Like the more somebody does something, like the less we feel the need to thank them. And that entitlement begins to feel like a withdrawal. Just thanking someone for little things that they do and are boosts them. Thank you so much for taking out the trash as opposed to finally took out the trash. Good, it's your job. This food was delicious. I like the way you look in those slacks (laughs) or whatever is your thing. You text them have a conversation, give them a gift, whatever it looks like. But like them knowing that you're grateful that you get to be with them, that you're partnered up with them. And then the fourth thing is this, be touchy-feely, be touchy-feely. Now I can feel some of you that are like, mm, that's not really my thing. But let me, just, let me just argue my case on this. Like, first of all, uh, statistics show that, that couples who like hug and kiss and brush by each other and sort of just like put a hand on each other's arm or, um, you know, a hand on each other's back or things like that. Couples that just have these little tiny touches throughout the day um, across the board report having significantly better sex lives. So those little touches add up to some other touches. And uh, (laughs) if you're wanting the one, maybe invest in the other, just throwing that out there. The other thing that I would tell you is this. like the amount of, of like human contact that people have now is so low and we need it. And research shows that a 20 second hug releases oxytocin. And it's sort of this, this other brain chemical that actually contributes to the second part of relationships. It's not the dopamine high It's the settled-in feeling of connection and bonding. And simply having a 20-second physical connection with just being held or holding someone else releases those chemicals and allows you to feel more connected and bonded to them. Which is why it's important and significant. I would say one 20-second hug a day would do your relationship well. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, which deposit, I mean, this feels like a lot. I don't know if I'm going to do all four, and it's just like, I'm not doing any of them, so, like, where do I start? Like, which deposits can have the biggest positive relational impact on my partner? And there's a real great way you can find this out. Ask them. I wonder how long it's been since you've actually asked the person you're partnered with, what do you need more of from me to feel connected to me? What do you need? I want to love you the way you need to be loved. I don't, I feel like I don't always know what that is. Help me. I want to do the right thing. I don't know what the right thing is. That moment of genuine vulnerability has the power to change the entire relationship. So here's what I want to do to end today. I'm actually going to invite my wife to come up. We're going to do something that closes the service. I don't think we've ever done, but if you are in a, if you're married or engaged, would you, and you're with your partner, would you just stand up like next to them right now? And 
I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your relationship. I want to pray for your connection. Um, but I also want to give you an opportunity to practice one of these four things. And so would you just put either an arm around them? Maybe you want to turn and face them and hug. No kissing, because we don't want to get it that weird. Okay? Don't throw a leg up, okay? Fourth row, I'm looking at you. But, but simply, like, hold on to them. And um, in this moment, I, I want to just pray for these couples that God would be with them, that God would bond them, that God would connect them, that God would repair them. And so if you're sitting down as opposed to being like, I wish I could be standing, <laughs> stupid. Would you just for a moment just channel your energy to the people around you and pray with me over these relationships? Would you close your eyes with me? God, I pray for every single person in this place, every couple in this place. God, every couple represented, standing, holding, hugging one another. I don't know where their relationship is at, but I know how it began. It began with this falling in love, this supercharged moment of just wanting to be with and be around and spend their life with and serve and know this other person. And over time, some of that dissipates. And God, I pray that you would restore it. God, I pray that you would enable us to receive for ourselves the love you have for us and begin to reflect the love you have for us on our partner. That you would heal marriages, that you would bond couples, that you would just begin enabling them to deposit and deposit and deposit. God, it's possible to pay back an account you've overwithdrawn, but we need your help to do it. And God, I pray that you would empower us to do what we feel like we can't do, what we don't feel like doing, what we may not even want to do in the moment, what we're not comfortable doing. God, give us the ability to love like you. And God, may our marriages, our families, our church, our community be stronger because of it. God, may our children see how much work we're willing to put in to make love last. May we set an example of what it looks like to love like Jesus. In your name, Father. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.